This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, neurosociology with Rengen Firat from the University of California at Riverside. Our discussion was recorded on August 12th, 2019. Okay, we're here with Rengen Firat, a sociologist from UC Riverside. Rangan has a pretty long publication, an impressive publication list, I have to say. She led a 2017 paper called uh, Putting Race in Context, Target Social Class Modulates Processing of Race in the VMPFC and the Amygdala in Social Cognitive. Perfect. And effect, thank you very yeah. much, in effect of neuroscience. And recently, she published Opening the Black Box, functions of the frontal lobes and their and their implications for sociology in our frontiers in sociology that was this year and rangan is a neurosociologist which is a crazy <laughs> topic so thank you so much for sitting down with us thank you for having me i'm excited to be here yeah yeah i'm happy to just get an explanation it sounds like an amazing field you're uh, your publications sound so impressive. Thank you. And I'm trying to get my head around it. Tell me, what is neurosociology? Thank you so much. It is so exciting. It is a very new subfield of sociology. Um, actually, people have been writing about it for a while, like David Franks, um, the last decade or so. But the um, research, the empirical part of it is pretty new. So it is a subfield that I am trying to popularize and get people familiarized uh, with. So neurosociology is a sociology neurological theory and method that uses neurological methodologies and theories. My research particularly uses brain imaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging to understand the mental, the subtle mental processes of social behavior, like racial bias, ethnic relationships, political behavior, political attitudes. So it gives us a micro lens into what is going on in human mind, human brain. Wow. Can you explain maybe an experiment that you've conducted, like describe it and then give us a sense of the insights that you got from your empirics? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So in one of the papers that you just uh, mentioned, the title, that is a functional MRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging Uh study, which means that I put people in this huge um, fish inside a huge scanner. They lie down on a table, the table scoops in the scanner, Mm. and they are looking at pictures. So this is a very basic paradigm. This is a very standard social psychological experiment Mm -hmm. where I uh, manipulated the pictures. So the pictures were of people from different racial and social class groups. So I wanted to investigate how our brains process out-group and in-group race and social class members. And one of my main findings is Uh that unlike where a lot of psychology research argues that like fear and aversion or anxiety might be involved, I show that it's actually also emotions like pride, sympathy, moral emotions are also important and our brain regions that are associated with these emotions are, uh, we can see the activation in them when people are looking at pictures of, let's say, white middle class versus black middle class people. So this is one of the revelations of uh, one one of my articles. Can you flesh this out? Like, so 
you're saying that you see, you're, you're looking at different emotional linkages with sort of the types of things that we in sociology study, like ethnic conflict or uh, bias or things like that. Uh-huh. You're using brain scans to get a sense of the raw emotions that are triggered by the phenomena we study. Exactly. Amazing. And when you say like pride mm-hmm. is part of bias, like what do you mean? Like what, what's going on there? Pride is a very interesting emotion. It is a moral emotion and it is a very human emotion. It builds us, it it builds communities, right? Mm -hmm. We feel pride when we uh, do our moral obligations. Interestingly, this human emotion, this moral emotion, what I found is that it is observed more for our in-groups. Okay. It is more, we see more pride for our in-groups, so it binds people. So it just becomes as part of this racial hierarchy in a subtle way. So a positive emotion like pride oh. maybe is reserved for people that we admire, people like us. Huh. So what you're saying, like, so, so for example, I'm a Canadian. Mm-hmm. And let's say we were studying national bias. Uh, what you're saying is I might latch on to my Canadian identity and think that national affiliation is salient and want to keep it salient mm-hmm. because when I reflect on Canadianness, I feel the emotion of pride and it's not something that I'd want to give up. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And that might be a motive why people have such difficulty getting rid of their attachment to uh, mm-hmm. identities that... Exactly, because a lot of the social biases, what I argue, are moral biases. Huh. So it is the, it's the moral hierarchy. What do you mean by that? Like our biases are moral. What does that mean? It means that they are um, socially constructed, as mm-hmm. most sociologists would argue with me. Mm-hmm. What it actually also means that racial categorization is not inevitable. Okay. We can change that. This is relying on a moral hierarchy, our system, our discourse, our legal system, our institutions, huh. which build not only our daily lives and the legality of things, but also a, a moral system, the way we think about things, the way we feel about things, which are very important. And because a lot of recent research in neurology actually shows that moral emotions are more important than moral cognition huh. in deciding our behavior. So they are more automatic, they're fast. So they're more important than in things like racial bias. Well, okay, so from what I'm gathering from you is, so for example, let's say we want to combat racism by engaging people uh, with rational arguments. We say, mm-hmm. well, it's not actually true that this group is more dangerous or it's not actually true that this... What you're saying is that... That's not going to help. It's not going to help it's because it's help a visceral reaction exactly. these things. It is an intuitive reaction. So people feel it in their guts. So we have to go back and change those gut feelings. Wow. So that is the whole argument. And that's what I'm trying to do. Wow. Um, find ways, find mechanisms uh-huh. that might buffer these gut reactions by looking at the brain and the body. Oh, wow. What other emotions did you see that attach people to, let's say, race or Mm -hmm. or, uh, ethnic uh, ideology or their ethnic identity and racism or, you know, an ethnocentric view of the world? Mm -hmm. Emotions other than pride, um, emotions like disgust, for for example. Uh So it is not a pure hatred, Uh but it is as if that group is not even a human category. 
Huh. And I even observed some regions in the human brain that are, um, so I also showed them pictures of objects and animals, uh-huh. non-human things. Okay. And then you find similarities in brain activation when people look at pictures of maybe like a spider or pictures of a dirty toilet or a dirty thing. Wow. With stigmatized, when they were also looking at pictures of stigmatized art groups. Wow. Especially racial and social class art groups. So this has like big implications. So it's like, it's almost like, I mean, if disgust is a motivator, you're like, uh, you could see how people, if, if they, they wouldn't even want to be uh, near the, the, the stigmatized exactly. groups. Exactly, yeah. More, a lot of moral distancing. And there's a big literature also in psychology on dehumanization. Right. So moral emotions are very important in dehumanization. Wow. Yeah, but what a lot of this research doesn't look is the social structural context mm. of these things. How does social class play into that? How does race play into that? Now, in your research, have you looked at how these emotions get attached to identities? Or are we just at the point where we're just establishing these We're just establishing at this point. There's some recent research um, on how, like the more the developmental aspects of it, but it is still uh, pretty recent at this point. At the time when I did this study, I actually collected my data around 2000. 15, uh-huh. no, not too, earlier than 2010, okay. 11, 2010, 11. That was um, one of the first studies that had both social class and race. Uh-huh. So because wow. a lot of the psychologists were just thinking race as one uniform category. Mm-hmm, Whereas mm-hmm. as sociologists, we think that race is also class-based. Right. So racial yeah. categories. So like we might be attuned to the possibility that like uh, a higher economic class person might view a co-ethnic with disgust if they're from a different economic class, for example. Yes, but this is very subtle. That's Mm. why it is very difficult to capture with very traditional sociological methods. Totally. Like surveys or interviews. And I actually debriefed all my subjects at the end. So I had conversations with um, every single one of them. Uh And they were, all of them are, they're they're all nice people. And they're like, oh, we're so glad that you're studying racism. We want it to end. So they're all very pro-supportive of this type of research. But still, when we look at people's brains, we see the differences. They have the visceral response. Yes. Wow. What other ones? Just give me one or two more. I hate to do this, all of it. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, the emotions. It, well, you know, it's interesting because it, when you describe these phenomena in such sort of narrow emotional terms, you realize that, for example, when you think of racism, you're sort of imputing a particular type of caricature, a person with motivations or reactions or beliefs. Mm-hmm. And when the emotions that you describe are different from what, you know, is the caricature in my head of a racist or Mm -hmm. anything like to think of it as involving pride or involving disgust, it makes so much sense. Yeah. It shapes the way you think about it. Like, I'm just enjoying this fleshing out. So maybe one more and then we can move on to another. (laughs) So I actually looked at four basic and four moral emotions and disgust is sometimes basic, sometimes moral. So I also looked at fear and anger and happiness for the moral emotions, envy. Envy is, an, is envy is a good one. Really? Yes, and I found differences in envy. So I also studied patients uh-huh. who have damaged 
to their uh, certain brain regions uh-huh. in the same article. Oh, wow. And um, there's a part of the brain, it's called, the v- well, no, it's in the title, the VMPFC. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, didn't, I didn't even know what yeah, that was. I was just going to fake this it. This ventromedial prefrontal cortices. That's the okay. kind of in the front, but also like medially located middle part of the brain. Uh-huh. That part is the underlying region for moral emotions. Okay. And especially emotions like pride and envy. Okay. And one of, one of the things I found was that when in my uh, subject group that did not have that region, mm-hmm. either due to a tumor or a stroke, a reason or another, mm-hmm. they showed very different responses than people who did not have any damage. So they were actually showing more biased responses. So they were f- res- reporting even more envy, even more pride for their in-group. Oh, they couldn't, there was like no conditioning type of emotion. Why do emotions interact with each other? Do they like fight each other? Or? Um, they might. I think, yeah, I think they absolutely interact with each other. And huh. it is possible, I think, uh-huh. and to hold all these emotions that might be conflicting right. with each other as well. You know, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are, so for example, I can think of co-ethnics with me that I don't, on a visceral level, I don't have positive reactions yeah. to. And it might condition how totally I make or how central my ethnicity would be to yeah. my personal identity because there's these multiple Exactly. Versions. So the basic wow. idea here is that it's because humans we have not evolved to have races. Right. We have not evolved to have ethnicities. Right. But the basic idea is that when we look at human evolution, humans have evolved to have coalitions. Uh-huh. Because um, in order to survive back in the time, we need to be able to establish partnerships mm-hmm. because we are social animals right. to go hunting or um, to fight even another tribe. We need to be able to establish these coalitions. Right. So a lot of the neural architecture that currently defines racial bias is actually a neural architecture that has evolved to track coalitional affiliations. Wow. So the same thing with political alliances. Huh. It's all tribal. Well, uh, you know, you hear a lot of political scientists now saying that, you know, tribal behavior sits at the root of a lot of political behavior. And you're saying that there's like, there's almost a program. Our our emotions get mobilized to shape our behavior to be sort of pro-in-group or pro Pro tribe, mm-hmm. and these in groups and or the so called tribes would depend on our quote unquote social programming. Right. The groups that we are involved in. Right. Um, our education system, our legal system, all these sociological factors. Right. So that's what neurosociology is looking at: all these sociological factors and trying to figure out how they affect the microbiological processes. Wow. And what what issues have you tackled in the, like with this type? of approach, this type of paradigm, what problems or social issues or concepts have you explored using this approach? Mm-hmm. So far, I have looked at, um, so other than this racial bias, uh-huh. in a very in another recent study, I looked at social exclusion, Okay. the effects of being excluded. And um, so the brain, what I found, which is similar to other studies, is that the effects of, uh, when people are socially excluded, the brain regions that are activated in response to physical pain mm-hmm. are activated. Mm-hmm. Really? So we feel social pain as if it is physical pain. And that's why like isolated confinement is considered such a harsh exactly. penalty. Exactly. It is a social punishment and we feel it bodily. It's like a physical punishment. What's the is it is it like we're pack animals and we need to like what's yes. the evolutionary biology view? We are pack animals. One of the basic arguments is that we need to be grooming each other uh. and we do it with language. 
because uh, our group size, mm -hmm. uh, like Dunbar's rule, is um, What's like. What's that? I don't know Dunbar's <laughs> rule. So. <laughs> I think it was. Um, so it's the number of people. Um, if you were at a bar, mm -hmm. it is the number of people that you would bump into and could have a small conversation without being awkward. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> so, uh, okay. so it is Dunbar's rule is that this number is an equilibrium, and humans have evolved in this. Um, so we could hold, I think, I think it was 150, if I'm not mistaken. So this is the number of people that we could sustain in okay. our communities. If it was a small number, like 10, uh -huh. we did not need a lot of social rules. We would not need language, maybe. Right. We would not need a lot of our symbols and gestures. Right. But because we have evolved to be in bigger groups, right. but not mass, not the ma not like mass market society, right. but big enough that we need to be able to use the symbols and the gestures and an abstract language to be able to solve problems. That's interesting though. So it's like, are, are you saying, is the idea that there is like a natural group size this is dumb. This is what dumb is saying, okay. not me. All right, all right. <laughs> and there is some di uh, uh, disputes of this. This is a conversation, of right. course. Um, but it's an it's an idea that's out there. It is a theory, at least, that shows the socialness of humans. How we are very social animals. So my I have colleagues that are primatologists right. that study macaque monkeys. They uh -huh. study chimpanzees and orangutans, and they're also social animals. Uh -huh. And we could see the basic, even certain moral capacities like fairness. Really? perceptions of fairness in other primates and monkeys. Wait a minute. So like a lot of the in-group, out-group behavior that we exhibit, you know, is this like we're thinking of a universe of like up to 150 people who are sailing it to us and we mobilize like these type of schema yes. on behalf of our group of 150? <laughs> is that it? And that would be one theory about that. Or at least because human cognition is not evolved in a mess in a modern society with millions of people living right. in a modern nation state, maybe we are thinking when we think about our nationality, when we're thinking about our political groups or racial groups, right. we're thinking about them as more concrete, smaller tribal groups. Huh. Then also, it's like, wow, that it makes it hard to imagine a social system where there's not this animus because there's always, if such small groups are salient, then you're always going to have like an in-group and out-group. Is that, and it's just we're programmed to be like that? Is that the idea? Or? I think we're always going to have an in-group and out-group, but it doesn't mean that our, we cannot expand our in-group. Right. That's another thing I'm studying. So I'm, I'm very interested in studying human values okay. as a subcomponent of human morality. And uh, one of the values that I'm interested in is self-transcendence. Okay. So this is, is the, it is the valuing people or groups that are beyond your immediate self and immediate in-group. Okay. So without getting an immediate reciprocation, would you contribute money to your cause? Would you go and help a stranger on the street? Do you support equality? Do you support the welfare of other people? So it's like you're trying to, it's like reorienting these categories that we have in our head that we react viscerally towards. Yes. Wow. And one of the things I'm interested in uh -huh. is that does this value orientation, could it help buffer racial bias and stress that might be caused by interethnic contact? Huh. So that's one of the things I'm looking at. So that's a new project I'm launching wow. at UC Riverside to see whether or not we could look at these different values hmm. as mechanisms to buffer interethnic stress. 
you said that you have some ideas of interventions that yeah. have come up uh-huh. over the course of week. Can you give us sort of an overview of that? Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm interested in two value prototypes. So one of them would be self-transcendence, which I, which is an um, established actually value domain mm-hmm. in Schwartz values theory. Mm-hmm. I kind of turn it around a little bit and I conceptualize it as a communal value. I say Uh communalism. So one of the things I'm interested in is that can we increase communalism? And how can we do that? What if I put people in groups where they cooperate more? How could they cooperate more? Mm -hmm. Could we create a common symbol, common language? So that would be one way. Mm-hmm. Another value that I'm interested in, this is a concept that is also familiar to sociologists and <laughs> might be contentious, mm-hmm. is agency, the concept of agency. Mm-hmm. So I also argue that agentic values, being able to manipulate your environment, being open to new ideas and mm-hmm. new experiences might also help some people uh-huh. and protect the uh, efforts. So in one of the manipulations that I'm trying to develop, for example, I'm asking people to recall the times that they have put in an effort to come up with creative ways Mm -hmm. to certain problems. That's one way. Okay. And some other way of, in another manipulation, I'm looking at communal values and more implicit priming. Okay. Where they just read a text describing a situation. Uh And we could just change the pronouns from I to we. So like that we-ness, like reading something with the language that says we and our and ours might prime people to think more communally. Now, have you done any research along these lines or is this a direction you're looking to go yeah, to? Yeah, so my uh, last brain imaging study, functional MRI study, I used these priming methods okay. to look at how they buffer social pain in the brain, social exclusion-related pain in the brain. Wow, and what And I find, find that communalism especially is helping minority groups. Huh. I had African-American and Caucasian subjects. Mm-hmm. So especially African-American subjects benefited from communal values. But I'm still analyzing my data. I need to do all my checks and balances. Balances and wow. So this is a paper in progress. Wow, wow. <laughs> I have to say, okay, well, this has been amazing. <laughs> what a line of research. That's neurosociology. First of all, if if someone's, you know, just exposed to this for the first time, might not have the biology background, like let's say an early yeah. career grad student who might not have come here from a bio background. How do you get started on this, a young person who's interested? That's a really good question. A lot of students actually ask me that question. Mm -hmm. And I I don't have the best answer, of course. I just tell them what I did Mm -hmm. and what um, it also depends on each person and their institutions and what are available options. So I took a lot. It was difficult. I took a lot of extra classes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I took neurology classes. I took medical neuroanatomy and neuropsychology courses to kind of have a background in this uh, so I did a lot of research in the neurology department. I attended a lot of neurology meetings. Huh. And so that I'm exposed to other people's research. And I took all this coursework. And uh, all my dissertation work I completed in the neurology clinic. Really? So wait, you sort of did all of this over the course of your sociology doctorate? Yes, yes. Alongside wow. all the sociology. Oh, wow. Well, see, that's what it takes. So you basically need to get two PhDs but, at once. But that's what yes. I'm trying to change in the discipline. So right. I, in at UC Riverside, what I'm trying to establish with the courses I teach mm-hmm. and the research training I offer is to introduce my students to this training without having to go to a neurology department. Wow. So basically they could train. Of course, they would not be a trained neurologist, but at least I could teach him the methods I know. Be a I could neurosociologist. Teach him. Yes, exactly. They could be a neurosociologist. Wow. What? First of all, I'm so impressed. Wow. <laughs> I'm like blown away. What a line of research. 
Thank I'm you. Like, I'm very humbled to be hearing all of this. It sounds incredible. And I guess the answer in brief is if you want to be a neurosociologist, well, then head over to UC Riverside yes. and look up Reagan Farad because that's <laughs> definitely that's or, where it's at. Yeah, or feel free to email me with any questions. I'm like very happy to answer students and other colleagues' questions. Wow. It was a pleasure. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much. I this appreciate was incredible. it. Yeah. That's Rangan Ferrat from the sociology department at the University of California at Riverside, introducing us to the extremely exciting field of neurosociology. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Rangan Ferrat from the University of California at Riverside. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at Sochanix. Our producers are Laseth Moreno, Jaylene Colon, and Fazia Muhammad. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.